Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bible with me to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I hope that all of you enjoyed our time on the Roman road, but that time has come to an end. I hope you learned something or at least were reminded of some things that you already knew. But let's return now to our verse-by-verse study of Luke. You remember that the first three chapters of Luke detail the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of his mother Mary. It also talked about the interaction that she had with her cousin Elizabeth as she was pregnant with John the Baptist. Speaking of John the Baptist, it was John the Baptist, of course, that baptized Jesus, recorded here in the first three chapters of Luke. Uh, And after we have uh, the record of Jesus' baptism, we have his genealogy. That genealogy proves that Jesus has the right to be the descendant of David, which makes him uh, eligible to be the Messiah of Israel. And that's important. And so we come now to chapter four, which details the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness, 40 days of fasting and praying after his baptism. So let's read the first 13 verses of Luke four. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days And when they had ended, he became hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now you know that temptation is simply the enticement to sin. And you may be here today and you feel like a man who once told me that the only thing in the world that he could not resist is temptation. Well, thankfully our Lord did resist temptation. In fact, every temptation that came his way In fact, the scriptures tell us that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Now, few people would deny the reality of temptation. It would be hard to because it's all around us, every day, everywhere. The question is, where does it come from? What is the ultimate source of temptation? Well, we know where it's not from. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil or he himself does not tempt anyone. Have you ever heard someone say after they've sinned, I can't believe God tempted me that way. Well, that's not true. God does not tempt. He doesn't lead people into sin. And so the question is, where does it come from? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Just listen as I read. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 2, if, and you were dead, he says, speaking to Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now in those two verses, theologians gather that our temptation has really three sources, what they call the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the course, Paul says, that is our ways of culture and society. And it's early in the morning yet, but I think we can all be awake enough to agree that our society and our culture is in opposition to the things of God, right? And so the world is a temptation for Christians. Now, now secondly is the flesh. Now when the Bible speaks of the flesh, it's not talking about the body as inherently evil. The body is a good thing in the sense that God made it. Remember, like everything God made, He said it's good. But we have a sin nature, don't we? A propensity and a tendency to disobey God. And when the Bible says that the flesh leads to temptation, it means our evil desires. In fact, if I were to read on in James 1.13, it says, let no one say when he's tempted, he's been tempted by God, but rather each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so the majority of the time, I would say that when we give in to temptation, we're not being directly tempted by Satan because Satan can't be everywhere at once. It's usually our own nature that causes us to lust and desire what we should not have. But that is not to say that the devil is not real. And that, that leads me to the third source of temptation, that is the devil, which the scriptures here call the prince of the power of the air. And this morning in our time, I want to deal primarily with that third source of temptation, the devil, because um, that's what we find him doing here in chapter 4 of Luke. For 40 days, as Jesus was fasting and praying, he was also simultaneously being tempted by Satan. And that's our first point, the reality of the enemy. We do have an enemy. We need to realize that. The idea that there exists in 2017 a real, live, spiritual being called the devil who opposes the work of God and stands in opposition to God's people is a laughable mythology to most people in our culture. They think it's silly. Their idea of the devil is a, a man in a red plastic suit with a pointy horns and a bifurcated tail. And Satan, by the way, loves that. Because as long as he's a cartoon, they won't understand how powerful he is and how he leads them to, into temptation. But the Bible indicates that the devil is real. And he is a person. Now, now the primary reason why I believe that Satan is not a metaphor or Satan is not just a philosophy or idea, but that he's a real entity and a real person is because that's what Jesus thought. Because Jesus understood that we have an enemy. In fact, the Bible teaches that Satan is real, that we must resist him. And when we do resist him, he'll flee from us. He communicates, he talks, he speaks, he is intelligent. He has plans and schemes, which the Bible calls wiles. He lies. Bible calls him a murderer. He has influence over everything that happens in this world. He has many titles in the Bible, the accuser, the enemy, the adversary, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He is real. In Matthew chapter 4, he is simply referred to as the tempter, the tempter. And that's exactly what we find him doing here in our text this morning, Luke 4. Look at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
Now, to be filled means to be saturated. It means to be totally controlled by. And Jesus was always controlled by the Holy Spirit. He said he always and ever did the will of the Father. And so he was going where the Spirit led him, doing what the Spirit called him to do. In fact, the Bible says we're to do the same. Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a lot of people that when they've had enough to drink are totally controlled by the alcohol. Paul says, don't be that person, but you rather you be controlled by the Spirit. Now, a lot of people have misconstrued his meaning to mean that when you're filled with the Spirit, you act like you're drunk. You roll around on the ground and you speak gibberish and bark like a dog. That is not what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with, filled with the Spirit means that you are under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. And so in the wilderness, Jesus goes out, and this wilderness, by the way, was very isolated and nearly lifeless, and that was the point. Jesus often went away from the crowds and from the world. Here he is beginning his ministry, and he knows he needs uh, to spend time with his heavenly Father. And for 40 days, he fasts and he prays. But again, Satan is intelligent. He's referred to it by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 as a roaring lion, roaming about, seeking who he can destroy. So picture Satan roaming about that wilderness, and he's looking for a target of opportunity. Do you notice that lions in Africa, they always look for a target of opportunity, one that is weakened or sickened or vulnerable in some way, and Satan works that way. And so he finds Jesus, and he's weakened in his humanity by lack of food, and he views this as an opportunity to pounce to tempt Jesus to sin. But what he doesn't count on is that Jesus was weakened by hunger in his flesh, but he was strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples on more than one occasion that I have bread to eat that you know not of. Now his disciples are like a lot of us. They heard the physical when Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms. And so they go, did you give him something to eat? No, I didn't. Did you give him something to eat? He was talking about his real nourishment was spiritual in nature, and it came through intimacy and fellowship with his Father and through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. He was also equipped by the Word of God, as we should be. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells every Christian to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But the only offensive weapon that God gives us is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every Sunday afternoon, our children come up here for what we call Bible drills, but we call it in my day sword drills. They learn to use the sword of the Lord, the Word of God, effectively against temptation. And Jesus, of course, was able to do that. And that leads me to my second point, and that is the power of the Word. Now, the Bible says a lot of things about itself. For example, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says of itself that it is helpful to Christians. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or helpful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But it's also hope-giving. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in former days were written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So when you read those Bible stories to your children, it's not just so they can sleep better at night. It's to remind them that the same God that delivered those Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace is the same God that they serve today, right? The same God that destroyed the world in a flood provided a way for their salvation. 
The word of God says of itself that it is eternal. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. But what the Bible says about itself that I want to point out this morning is that it is powerful. It's powerful. Hebrews 4, 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that day, the cutting edge of military technology was the two-edged sword. It had a, a blade that could cut up or down. It was light. It was easily maneuvered in battle. And it was incredibly deadly. And it was valuable. The scripture compares itself to that two-edged sword. That it is able to pierce the division of soul, of spirit, of joints, and marrow, discerning the thoughts and tension of the heart. That is, it is accurate and it is a powerful weapon in the right hands. And here in Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus sets a wonderful example for all believers who, like Jesus, face temptation every day when he uses the scriptures powerfully, precisely, and expertly to thwart the plans of Satan. That is, Jesus used the Word of God as a surgeon would use a scaffold, not the way a brute would use a club. I say of some people that they know enough scripture to be dangerous. What I mean by that is they only have one tool in their arsenal. And so if they're faced with a situation, all they know to do is to beat people over the head with the Bible as a club. Jesus didn't do that. He used the Bible in context and in nuance and chose those verses which were appropriate for the situation. I think you'll see what I mean as we walk through these three temptations. The first temptation is found in verse 3. The devil said to him, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, Satan knew and knows that Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus knew and knows that he's the son of God. So, remember I told you last week that sometimes in the New Testament where the English writers translate the word if, it could more accurately be translated because. And here's one of those situations. Because you are the son of God, cause these stones to be turned to bread. By the way, could Jesus have done that? Absolutely, he's God. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So the temptation really is the temptation to doubt God's provision, plan, and priority. Satan is intelligent, as I've said, but he's not very creative. He keeps using the same strategies over and over in every new generation. John chapter 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What gives Jesus strength is obedience to the Father. He said it would do the same for us if we would do it. When he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those things are the necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter. What's more important is obedience. Now, th this is a big part, as I said, of Satan's strategical playbook. Remember back in the Garden of Eden? Wasn't that his original temptation to Adam and Eve? God has said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But will you really? What I think, Eve, is that God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. And he's holding out on you. God's not as good as he claims to be. He's doing the same for Jesus. Jesus, if your father really loves you, he would provide a banquet for you out here in the wilderness. So you're going to have to do it on your own. That is the temptation that we face every day to read God's word and know his will, but to doubt his provision, plan, and priority for our lives. But Jesus, 
thoroughly saturated with the word of God, responds with one verse, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone. Now we hear that verse a lot. Dieters sometimes use it for motivation. But Jesus was not talking about simply flour and yeast and salt, bread. It's obvious we, we need bread. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said, give us this day our daily bread. But, but bread indicates anything in the physical realm. He's saying that, that we need to understand that there is another realm that is more important than the physical, and that is the spiritual. And man shall not simply live by what he can see on bread alone. And so Satan decides to try another tactic. His second temptation begins in verse 5. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all the domain in its glory, where it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. Now, what you need to know about Satan is what Jesus told his disciples, and that is he is a liar. Satan is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Now, he, he doesn't often tell whoppers. He mixes and mingles a little bit of truth with his lies to make it more appealing, and so he does that here. You see, this temptation is the temptation to ignore God's plan and go another way. That is to circumvent God's revealed word for your own strategy. And that's always a bad move. God's plan for Jesus' life was that he would come into the world, live a perfect life, and die on the cross for our sins. That's why he came. Satan knows that. And so he's trying to usurp that. He's trying to circumvent that. He's trying to get Jesus to, to, to receive glory through a shortcut. And, and this is what he does to us today. He, he tries us to find gratification through a shortcut or short-circuiting short God's way. That's why when Jesus was talking to his disciples towards the end of his ministry, and he finally just told them very frankly, I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to die on the cross. And you remember what Peter said, speaking for the twelve? Not so, Lord. <laughs> I've got a better plan. Just listen to me for a second. And you know what Jesus said to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. You know why he called him Satan? Because that's exactly what Satan had tried to do out in the wilderness. Jesus, I, I know that you are going to receive all this glory for dying for the sins of the world through your father, but there's an easier way. Why don't you just bow down to me? I have the authority to give you what you want. Now, remember I told you Satan's a liar, but he mingles it with truth. Now there's the truth to the fact that he is the prince of this world. For a time, God has given him some power here, but it's limited in scope. And in fact, Satan's end has already been declared in the book of Revelation, right? He and his demons are going to be cast in the lake of fire, which was prepared for them. But for a time, he is running this culture and this society. He is behind all of the temptation that we see all around us. But does he have the authority to give Jesus anything? No. He is a created being under the authority of his creator. So what does Jesus say in rebuttal? Deuteronomy 6.3, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That is, there's only one God. There's only one who has the authority to glorify me, and that is my heavenly Father. 
But friends, we see this circumventing, this going around the will of God all the time. How about in the area of sexuality? Now God created human sexuality, and it's a wonderful thing if it's done in His way. That is a marriage between one man and one woman till death parts them. That is God's plan. He makes it very clear throughout scriptures in both testaments. And yet what does Satan tempt men to do and women to do? To go around God's plan, to short circuit it, to circumvent it through fornication or adultery or homosexuality or, or any other of the various ways that he tempts people in the area of sexuality. But here's what we know, if we do it God's way, He will bless it, right? He'll be glorified in it. And if we don't do it God's way, it ultimately ends in tragedy. Now speaking of tragedy, let's look at the third temptation in verse 9. And he, that is the devil, led Jesus to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now that's Psalm 91, 11, and 12. Does it surprise you that Satan knows Scripture? Don't be surprised if false teachers can quote a lot of Scripture. Now you'll note that they quote it out of context, and you know they twist it to meet their preconceived notions of what they want it to mean, but they can quote Scripture. Satan knows Scripture. Satan, Satan knows a lot of theology. But he does not bow his knee to the Lordship of Christ. This third temptation is the sin of presuming on God's grace. Jesus is setting his face at this moment towards Jerusalem. It, it's time for him to start his earthly ministry, which he knows will ultimately end at the cross. Satan wants to do everything he can to prevent that. And so he leads him up on the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down. God won't let anything bad happen to you. He said it in his word. He's, he's calling upon Jesus to presume on the grace of Jesus. He's, he's wanting him to commit suicide. Satan tempts people to take their own life and it's a tragedy when they do so thankful that we have a ministry in our church for those who are survivors and family members of, of those who have taken their own life. But uh, Satan is that evil. He wants people to take their own life. And, and Jesus rebuts him with the scriptures, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But it doesn't have to be as tragic and obvious as suicide. People tempt God all the time by doing foolish things. Remember a few years ago when there was this group out in San Diego, California, and their pastor convinced them that he had had a vision from God that Christ was going to come back on a certain day on the calendar, and he told them what the date was, and they all quit their jobs and gave away all their money and went and sat on a hill outside of San Diego and waited for Jesus' return, and he didn't. And they were found out to be foolish. How about the prosperity preachers that behave as if they have God on a leash, back him into a theological corner, make demands of him. You've got to heal me. You've got to give me money because I, I can quote a verse in the Bible. They trade upon the grace of God. 
They presume upon the grace of God. And here's what Jesus is saying when he says, do not tempt the Lord thy God. Always remember there is a God and you're not he, right? God sits on his throne. He does whatsoever he chooses. We are his servants. He is the sovereign. So Jesus would not succumb to this third temptation of Satan. Verse 13 says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, that's not to say Jesus gave him three strikes and he was out of there and never to come back. It's just that Satan knew that the time wasn't now, but he would come back time and time again throughout Jesus' lifetime to tempt him. By the way, which is what he does to us, right? If you're not presently facing temptation in your life, wait a couple of minutes. You will be. Because that's my third point, the inevitability of temptation. There are certain things in this life for every one of us that are inevitable. In fact, Jesus said this to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to whom, through whom they come. Jesus says that there's going to be problems in this life. And I, I would say another inevitability of every Christian's life is that temptation will come. Satan waited for a more opportune time. That is, there, there was a ceasefire on the, the temptation for a while. But if you read history books at all, you, you really know what the definition of a ceasefire is, right? That's when the two warring parties are reloading their weapons. That's what a ceasefire is. And so what Satan was doing was reloading his weapons to come back later more intensely than ever before, and as he did. If you are living, if your heart is beating, if your lungs are compressing, you will face temptation. That's why Paul tells Christians in Ephesians that we are to walk circumspectly in this world. To circumscribe something has to do with a complete 360 degree circle. To walk circumspectly does not mean that we go around spinning in circles theologically. It means that our head is on a swivel. We are looking to our left, to our right, up and down, in every direction, understanding that we have an enemy in the world. He's real. He's a roaring lion seeking who he can destroy and we need to be on our guard. In fact, the scripture uses those very words. Be on guard against the devil. In Ephesians, Speaking of our relationships, particularly in marriage, he says, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, on your angry and on your anger, and don't give the devil what? An opportunity. Satan is looking for that moment of weakness, that area of your life that is unguarded, that opportunity that he could step in and wreak havoc and destroy your life and your ministry and indeed this church. That's why I pray all the time, Lord, don't let him have an opportunity. That, that's why our pastors stand guard against false doctrine and teaching in our church. That's why we hold high the word of God, because we know as long as we're teaching the word of God correctly, that Satan won't have an opportunity here. But you say, Pastor, look, I know Jesus was an expert with the sword of the Lord, but I'm a new Christian. I'm, or maybe I, 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 I'm not gone to seminary or I, my parents didn't take me to Bible drills when I was a child. I, I know very little of the scriptures. I know I'm saved, but I feel so ill-equipped in the world. Well, th there's a way to get equipped, right? That is to study the Word of God. 
of God. The scripture says to study, to show yourself an approved workman who does not need to be ashamed. So wherever you are, whatever age you are, you can become equipped and, and become an expert in handling the word of God. But until then, there's a wonderful promise of scripture for you. Can I share it with you? Just turn your Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 13. I want you to mark this verse. I'd love for you to memorize this verse. I certainly want you to understand this verse. And it has to do with temptation. Remember that guy that said the only thing he can overcome is temptation? Well, that's not true of a Christian. I know that's not true because of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The Apostle Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians. Not only were they Christians in Corinth, they were weak Christians. Not very spiritually mature, if you know anything about them. This is what Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now, if that's all he said, that wouldn't mean very much. We all know that every one of us have temptations. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you will be able to endure it. That is a promise from Almighty God to every Christian, no matter what temptation He allows you to go through. Now, He doesn't cause temptation, but He sometimes allows us to go through temptations. No matter what it is, He will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able, but with the temptation will always provide you an avenue of escape so that you will be able to endure. That is, if you listen to Him, if you'll submit to His Spirit on a moment-by-moment, decision-by-decision basis, He will never, never lead you to sin. In fact, He will always lead you to obedience. And what a great promise from the Scripture. Now let's pray and thank Him for it. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we've studied temptation this morning, certainly resonates with, in my spirit. Lord, I'm, I'm no different than anyone in this room. I face temptation every day. I, I suspect when we get in our cars and crank the engine, we'll not go a quarter of a mile today without facing temptation from billboards and things on the radio, certainly when we get home and turn on the television, read the newspaper, maybe from people passing on the street. Lord, it's all around us. And yet you've promised that as we depend on you and walk closely with you, that you'll lead us out of temptation. Lord, I thank you for the great examples of Scripture, men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were tempted to circumvent your way in the name of comfort. They wouldn't do it, Lord. Think of Joseph who was tempted by a seductress who ran from her. He made a way of escape. Father, help us to do the same. Help us, Father, to stand against the schemes and the wiles of Satan. Equip us, Father, to be precise handlers of your word. Help us not to use it as a club, but help us to use it as a surgeon, use as a scalpel. Father, we know that you're glorified when we do. And so to that end, I make these requests in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.